Thank you, Ruth. That's what we should be our prayer. That's what I'd be willing to do. Amen. I appreciate that very much. Now, this morning, I want to uh, use the scripture that's been on the screen uh, and talk about the holiness of God and uh, what it means to each one of us and uh, look at some verses, the first eight verses of the sixth chapter of Isaiah. And uh, we'll uh, go through some of that. And uh, uh, tonight I'd like for you to, uh, uh, to consider, we, I want to talk tonight about uh, living old and sappy. If you look at the 92nd chapter of Psalms, it talks about the, uh, that the righteous, uh, the righteous in God will bear fruit in its season. And uh, that we, uh, even as we are older, will talk about maturing in Christ. Uh, so uh, this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with the first verse, reads this way. In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? <clears throat> and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We give you praise for all that you are and all that you've been doing in our lives. And, and we just give you the glory. <clears throat> and as we look into these verses, help us to understand who you are and who we are in, in that relationship. And we love you, Lord, knowing that it's into a relationship of give and take, of which we speak with you, you speak with us, and, and you call us to come closer to you, to, to live a life of holiness. And Lord, we, we give you thanks for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone would call you holy, would you consider that to be a compliment? Well, I, I think it would probably depend on what the next word is there, right? Uh, uh, two things. The first thing, would what, what, what are they associating that with? And the first you know, as you look at it, <clears throat> there's usually something else attached to the word holy. Holy roller. Holier than thou. 
you know, you know, that kind of a thing. In these cases, that's kind of a negative connotation. And uh, secondly, it would, depends on, it would depend on that person's definition of holiness. What do they think holy is? Or what, a holy role or a holier than thou? What, what do they think about that particular topic? But if you were called holy in, the, in a biblical sense, it would be a compliment, one that, but it might be one that we might be a little bit uncomfortable with to be called holy. <clears throat> and of all of the attributes of God, holiness is the one that seems to take center stage as we, as we look at these verses a little bit closer this morning. Now, <clears throat> I've been saying all along that in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, uh, they tend to emphasize something by repeating that word or that description. Uh, so, for example, if you said that a stone was big, it would mean one thing, that, that, that stone was big. But if in the Hebrew it's written that that is a big, big stone, you would see it bigger, right? A really big stone. And if you said that that stone was big, 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 that, that's a gigantic boulder. <clears throat> And so when we look at these verses and we look at, at what's being said here in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation chapter 4, the angels declare that God is holy, holy, holy. There's three, that, that, that repetition, that three. And this is the only attribute of God that is emphasized in this way. Because if you read here, Never in the Bible is God called love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. So if, if we want to know God, I think we need to understand the, the idea of God's holiness. If God is holy, 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 then we need to understand what that means or or what that, what that takes in. So the first point I want to make is, uh, is a holiness defined. <clears throat> now there are two ideas. There are two ideas to holiness. And the first idea is the idea of greatness. Great God is great. He is, he is great above all things. He made all things. And... Uh, uh, the other meaning for or idea of holiness is to be set apart. He is the other. God is apart from us in a class by himself. And there's a quote I put up on the screen from R.C. Sproul. Uh, there's a profound difference between him and those he has created. When the Bible speaks of holy objects or holy people or a holy time, it refers to things that have been set apart consecrated or made different by the touch of God upon them. It was the nearness of the divine that made the ordinary suddenly extraordinary and the common uncommon. And I, I think that's very well. That as, we, as we think about this, uh, another idea of holiness or something that is holy comes along with the word purity, that there's a purity involved. 
God is good. God does what is right and never does what is wrong. And we need to get that through our thick heads sometimes. God is unstained by and he is uncompromising when it comes to a three-letter word, S-I-N. There is no, no compromising. God does not bend a little. Oh, let's wink at that. And oh, that's okay. They're doing their best. When it comes to wrongdoing, God does not. And God always acts in a righteous manner because his nature, his nature is holiness. The, the, the huge, the largeness, the otherness, the, the purity, all of those t- combined. God is both great and good. And uh, the best way to, to look at uh, or have a case study on holiness is these eight verses that we read from Isaiah chapter 6. Now the setting is sometimes after, sometime after King Uzziah died. And that most of that story can be found in 2 Chronicles um, chapter 26. I'm not going to read that for you. You can read that some other time. But uh, he was, for the most part, a successful king. And we do know that Isaiah ministered during part of Isaiah, or no, Isaiah, but Isaiah ministered during Uzziah. Try to get that straight. Isaiah, Uzziah. I'm trying to get that through the fog of my mind here. But, but we don't really know what kind of a relationship they had. Uh, we can only speculate on what Isaiah's state of mind was when he received the vision that, we, that he writes about in chapter 6. Now, uh, the, the, the part of that vision is, uh, is the fact that, oh, let's see, where am I at? Isaiah was concerned on what was going to happen next. The king was dead. What was going to happen next to Israel? Then he has a vision. God gives him a vision. And there are several things that happen in that vision. And the first one, we, we talks about great, God's greatness. We'll, we'll back up here in the verses. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And here, let's, let's, let's look at this next part. And they were calling to one another. Calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was, was filled with smoke. So the first thing we see here, God's on the throne. Isaiah is dead. But God's on the throne. No matter what may be happening, first of all, in life, and your world might be shook up, God's still on the throne. Amen? No matter what we may be going through, God's still on the throne. He's still in charge. And uh, the throne was high and exalted and lifted up, which means it's greater and exceeded all other things in creation, all other thrones. And then the next thing that's mentioned, the train. 
just the train of his robe filled the temple. And if we, we can't get a real picture of that, you know, because the temple in those days was huge. It was a huge building. Inside the temple was a 40-foot high curtain, and behind that curtain was the, was the Holy of Holies. This is not a 40-foot high ceiling here. But if we get a 40-foot high, and then I don't know how many cubits or feet it was wide. We, we discussed that. Uh, Larry brought that out to us in the, in, the, in the studies on Wednesday nights. But just the train filled the temple. And uh, uh, when we have a, a wedding here, it's always interesting uh, as the, the officiant or the pastor doing the wedding that the, the bride chooses to have a, a gown with a train. And when that train comes around that corner and the bride comes around that corner with, with, uh, with the, her dad or whoever's leading her down there, that train has to come around. And whoever's back there has to help get that train lined up again. And then when they come up here, and it was always, it's always fun to, uh, to try to have a rehearsal and tell the bridesmaid or the maid of honor, here, hold, you have to take the flowers. And then when the bride turns and either comes up here or they face each other, you have to pass that off to the second person in line while you grab that train and keep it straight and keep it keep it out there and then they're going I got to do all that you know, you know that's a big responsibility but here's just the train the train you remember when uh, or some of you or maybe well let's look around here most of you uh, Princess uh, Di and Charles got married uh, back in the 80s something I don't even remember early 80s the, the train of that and how many people were involved in keeping that train going down the aisle and up those steps. And they had to do the same thing. They had to turn her. And when she turned, that train had to turn. So here's this train of God and, and it fills the temple and get a picture of that. Why, why a train in the first place? Well, it's, it was a symbol of royalty. The train of God filled the entire temple. His royalty far surpasses anything we've ever known or can, can imagine. <clears throat> At his side, God's side, were angels. And their job was to give glory to the Lord. But what does it say? I, I pointed that out. They were talking to each other. They weren't talking to anybody else around God. They, they, were, just, they were speaking to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And uh, they were just there and they were pure. These angels were pure, never known sin. They had six wings. I don't know how that works, but we're going to see that someday, right? Well, two, two wings covered their face, two wings covered their feet, and the, the other two kept them up, right? And the symbols of their creature-likeness, their face and their feet, are covered in the presence of a magnificent God. And we make a mistake when we imagine that God's goodness is simply higher than that of the best human. You think of the, the, the nicest person you've ever known, and just above that is God. Now, we're way down here. I mean, we're sinful. We're, we're, we're fallible. He's infallible. 
He's in a class all of his own. And uh, even the best people are fallible. God's purity, God's purity made the angels blush and seek cover. That's what that was. And, and the angels praise God three times holy. And they declare he is supremely holy. And the shaking of the doorposts simply adds to the sense of awesomeness or power. And some people are, I have heard and talked to people that are so arrogant that they say, well, when I get there, I'll uh, plead my case. Good luck. That's all I got to say is, we, I don't think we'll have a word to say. We'll, we'll be just so awed. We'll be on our face. And here is God, creator, maker of all things. And those images are designed to point us to, to a majesty in God. I love that course, majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus, right? The all glory, power. And these should provoke, what we're reading here, should provoke reverence and awe. And true worship begins when we understand and grasp. And we're just touch, we just touch the hem of his garment here. Uh, the power and the awesomeness and the, and the otherness of God. Worship begins when we catch a glimpse of the fact that there is somebody bigger than me. That's when worship starts. And that's where we are here in Isaiah chapter 6. And sec second, we see that, that there's God's goodness and man's unworthiness. Now, here's Isaiah. You know, he sees all of this. It's not his his reaction is not what we would have expected. We would have expected him to say, cool or wow, you know. But he says, what? I am undone. That is a complete breakdown. I am undone. I am nothing in, in front of all of this. And that woe to me, I am ruined. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. You know, we see similar things in the Bible. We see similar things. The centurion at the cross of Christ, on the, and uh, he, saw the, he saw the earthquake. Jesus lifted up his voice and said, I, uh, I give, he gave up the ghost. He died. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake. And this Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross he looks up and he says, surely this was the Son of God. There was an awesomeness. He saw that. And when the angels, oh no, I'm sorry. When the shepherds saw the angels that night when Jesus was born, it says they were sore afraid. They were shaking in their boots. This is something bigger than they've ever seen before. And any time that someone gets a glimpse of the almighty God, they're terrified. Why? Because Exodus 33, 20 says, no one may see me and live. And when we get a glimpse of that, uh, it, would, it would shake us down, shake us down to our boots. So the first response of an unholy person to the holiness of God is an acute awareness of personal sin. God is so good that he'll destroy anything that is sinful or unholy. And when the holy 
the, when the unholy confronts the holy, we become very conscious of our own self. We become aware of that. And it's like we live most of our life with the lights off, right? Don't you just love it when your husband or your wife just flicks on that light bulb in the morning? And you think, oh, you know, I got to get out of bed now. And, but it's just, there's a shock to your system. And God is light, right? And in him there is no darkness at all. We come into the presence of God. Darkness is gone. All, all of what is hidden is exposed. You can't hide anywhere. You can't cover up what you thought you, you've been good enough. This is, this is where you, you need to, might as well fess up. Here it is. Remember back when you were a child and uh, you're in the old neighborhood and you're playing the kids in your neighborhood and you just thought you were the greatest athlete in the world. You could run circles around all these kids in, in your neighborhood or you're, you're smarter than everybody else that's your friends in your neighborhood and, or you played an instrument better than them or, or you're a spiritual giant because you knew more Bible verses than anybody you ever met before. But somewhere along the line in life, as you grow up, there you find out that there's many others just as gifted or more gifted than you are. And uh, the first months of college are very sobering because the standard has changed. And instead of the big fish in the little pond, you're the little fish in the big pond. And uh, when you approach professional ranks in athletics, the standard changes again. And it goes up. The bar goes up. And if you've had an experience like that, then you give a little of the idea of what, how Isaiah felt that day. All of our lives... We feel like we're doing pretty good. I'm not like Saddam Hussein or Hitler. Or, uh, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm doing all right. We've been comparing ourselves with each other or other people around us. And when we compare ourselves to those around us, we can always spot those who, they need some work. But I'm better than that. You know, when we compare ourselves to the standard of holiness, Look out. Look out. And at that time, the wall of delusion comes tumbling down. Right? And that's why I believe that a person who has no sense of their own sinfulness has really had a true sense of the nature of God. The person who believes that they did the right things to get saved has no awareness of how deeply stained they really are. I think there come, has to come a time when we, we understand, oh, man, this, the way I've been living, that's repentance, that's change. We must be undone before we can be remade. And the Holy Spirit has to awaken us to that sinfulness of where we are before we can be summoned to his grace. And finally, we see God's provision. Once Isaiah realizes his sin, notice what happens. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I read this, and I go, Ouch! Ah! You know, a live hot coal on your tongue. And uh, why does he do that? He cauterizes the sin. God cauterizes Isaiah's lips. 
He eliminates the impurity. He burns that away. Isaiah's guilt is taken away, but it's not shrugged off. God doesn't say, oh, well, let's forget it. You're okay. You're, you're fine. Instead, he says, now your sin is atoned for. How can he say this? 700 years before Jesus would ever live, God says to Isaiah, your sin is atoned for. How, how can it be done? It, it's paid for in Jesus. And well, the promise has been made. The plan is in place. God forgave Isaiah, Isaiah on the basis of what Jesus was going to do hundreds of years in the future. <clears throat> Just like God is willing to forgive you based on what Jesus did 2,000 years in the past. And all, all history points to the cross. From the, from, the, from the Old Testament forward, this is an example of that. And from, an, from our day to day, back to, the, to Jesus on the cross. When Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross, he paid for our sin. God's justice is satisfied, sin is punished, and he is also able to extend mercy on the basis of Christ's substitution for you. And the reason that we celebrate, or the reason that we're called, I'm sorry, children of God, is not because we're good, but because we're forgiven. We're forgiven. That's why, that's why and how we are children of God. And so Isaiah, Isaiah is concerned with only one thing here. To honor the one who is most worthy of honor. <clears throat> and in the Bible, we're, taught, we're told that we are to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus chapter 11. I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean. Uh, is that what I got there? By any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Now, four times, four times in just the book of Leviticus, God says, you be holy as I am holy. And how can I do that? How can I do it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now he's saying, I'm supposed to be holy. Be holy. Don't touch the unclean thing. And then Jesus echoes that in Matthew 5, 48 during the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is calling us to a Christ-like living. We are, to set a, we, we are to be set aside for the service of the Lord. There's that one definition of holiness. We're set aside for the service of the Lord. He's calling us to set aside our life for, for what he wants us to do. And the person who's living a life of holiness will be humbly aware of the forgiveness and yet diligent in seeking to eliminate any element of sin in their lives. And that, that becomes that, that other. Chuck Colson, uh, in his book, Loving God, I found this quote, holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. 
It evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do hour by hour, day by day. Now, the person who has begun to understand God's holiness is a person who has changed. And the idea of an unchanged Christian is a contradiction in terms. I cannot be an unchanged Christian or I've not grasped something here. If I'm living my life as I lived my life before, there's something that I'm not getting. And we need to understand that. And we need to disciple people that way that, that we know that are young Christians. And if we're going to be true followers, we need to be serious about the pursuit of personal holiness in our everyday lives. The choices that we make day by day, hour by hour. There's nothing better than there is to serve the Lord. He's our life. He's our hope. He's our joy. And to run after and serve anything else other than the Lord is foolishness and temporary. So we need to look at our own hearts and the triviality of what we, we pursue each and every day that occupies our energy and our and our time. And we need to take we need to take personal holiness seriously. It is of utmost importance. And we need to stop comparing ourselves to other people and start measuring ourselves by the correct standard. God's word and his holiness. And it's just that relationship with you and God, that personal time with you and him in prayer where you open up to him this is where I am. I feel you want me to be there instead of here. Help me, Lord. What do I do? How do I get into that? What do I, what do I have to do? Now, when we measure ourselves by God's standard of holiness, it often hurts. And facing the truth in life can be painful. But he opens it up. He shows us. But we must be responsible for our own behavior and personal holiness is of utmost importance but the amazing thing about the gospel is that it tells us that because of what Christ has done on our behalf if we admit our sin and confess that to him words we speak oh he knows I did wrong he knows I know I did wrong no you need to talk to him. You need to open your mouth. You need to confess. It. Confess with your mouth that you have sinned. Right? First John 1 John 1.9. That, that words you... Instead of, oh, he knows I did wrong. He knows I know I did wrong. I won't do it again, Lord. Well, no. It, it's coming to him. This is something I did. This is an action I took. I may have made the wrong decision here. And then we just pick up and we move from there. We just keep going forward because we know we have to get that victory over that and then we're moving forward. His mercy. God is great and he is good and we need to let, we need to devote the rest of our lives to giving him thanks. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you this morning as we open your word, as we, as we consider 
that you indeed are holy and that we need you, that we are part of your creation. <coughs> we, are, we are part of what you have made. And Lord, help us to live our lives the way you want us to. Because we got all kinds of ideas of what we want to do with our lives and our futures, but we need to come to you first and get a and get a sense and get a completeness in our minds of where you want us and what you want us to do and be. But first of all, the very first thing is that we need to be holy as you are holy, set apart for your use, pure in relationship to, to sin because we have confessed with our mouth what we have done wrong to you. And we have believed in our heart that you have the power to forgive us just as you had the power to raise Christ from the tomb. We love you, Lord. Be with each one that is here this morning and throughout this day, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said...